Well, good morning, everybody, and thank you, worship team. That was fantastic. Gio, just before you go, come here for a second. I, I just think how brilliant of Gio to be able to swing it so that for the next three weeks, literally hundreds of us have Gio lunches for the next few weeks. So well done. I think that's absolutely brilliant. I just, yeah, enjoy. Enjoy every one of them. I really think he should be allowed to each one. The only thing that could beat it, and I, I'm sure you've heard the rumor, I only hope it's true, but I know, Andrew, you've been working super hard, and just this fall, apparently, Felker lunches are coming to Forestbrook. <laughs> so Geo lunches in the spring, Felker lunches in the fall. We hope, uh, sign me up. Yes. Yes, yes. Well, good morning. It has uh, been a theme at Forestbrook over this last year that we have been looking at the theme of the kingdom. And we've talked about the kingdom, how it is this image of restoring here on earth as it is in heaven, that this is God's design. And we've learned that even though the kingdom has not yet reached its perfect fulfillment, that day will come, it is very much alive here and now, and we are invited as followers of Christ to enter into it here. Despite all that is not yet fully revealed in the kingdom, despite all that will happen in the future here on earth, we are invited into a different type of life, a kingdom life on earth. And so we have a new series that we're going to start this morning, and, and it's another one of our, our re-words, the reveal word, that we would get in at pictures of the kingdom. And it's going to be a series of parables that we look at from the Gospel of Matthew. And when we had our teaching team meeting for this series, there was actually lots of excitement around this. There is much to discover and unpack in these parables in the Gospel of Matthew. So Jesus, all told, he had 65 stories or parables that he told. And 11 of them in the Gospel of Matthew are ones that reveal something specific about the nature of the kingdom. And they all start with this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like... And for some in the crowd that Jesus was talking to, they were simply entertaining stories. And for others, maybe they were informative. But this morning, we need to remember Jesus' heart. Jesus' desire in telling these was that they would not just be entertaining. They would not just be informing. They would be life-changing. Life-changing to his original hearers and life-changing for us today. So just want to take a moment, you know, before we get into this series of four weeks, just a few quick thoughts on parables as a whole, because it'll help us kind of shape where we go with these messages. So parables, you know, as we read or teach from them, we need to remember that basically they're object lessons that are intended to have one main point. Jesus told them a lot, and if we try to push too deep we get into theological trouble. If we try to mine too much out of them, most of them were told to illustrate a main point. They also were designed originally, they, they were told to resonate with the audience of who was there, who was in the room or who was outside at the time. Just like gifted communicators today will tell stories or illustrations that tie in and resonate with their audience. That was what parables were for. So Jesus was speaking to a lot of first-century Jewish farmers and first-century Jewish fishermen. And so you'll see those themes run frequently through the parables. And that may not be our world today, but we can still kind of get inside their heads. What would it have been like for them? How would they have heard these stories? That's important. 
Sometimes, like the one we're going to dive into this morning, Jesus actually kind of provides a legend or a key on how to interpret it, where he kind of tells us what everything represents. But regardless, they always reveal something. They reveal to us something about the nature of God, or they reveal to us, and they reveal to us something about the heart of the listeners. And it's why Jesus went to parables in the first place. Often those not open to Jesus' message or, or who he was, they wouldn't fully understand. They felt uncomfortable. They felt confused hearing his parables. And as time went on, Jesus spoke more and more frequently in parables. It revealed who actually wanted to follow him, and they still do today. So this morning, my words will be quite simple. But there's nothing that I can do to help you figure out the heart, the secret inside a parable. Anyone can hear them. But to understand the kingdom of heaven is to know secrets made clear only by the Spirit of God. And so this morning, as we're here, I want to encourage us to invite him in. Invite him to help us figure out what it is he's trying to tell us. These are riddles that are unlocked by God's Spirit to mine the full depth of what parables have to say. So I'm going to pause for a moment and give you a moment quietly just to ask for, for God's Spirit to guide you into understanding these this morning, and then I'm going to pray for us as a whole. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning eager for you to teach us, eager for you to make clear more about your kingdom and to reveal to us the nature of our hearts. Where are we struggling to hear this? What bothers us? Where are we struggling to understand? Jesus, may you send your spirit to be our guide this morning, to be our interpreter, to let us understand these mysteries of who you are and your kingdom that only you can unlock. Be with us this morning, I pray, in your name. Amen. So here we go. The kingdom is, of heaven is like parables. Some of them describe the kingdom of God as something that is growing, and Donna is going to tackle those next week. Some of them remind us that the kingdom of heaven is a joyful discovery, and Paul Lewis in a couple weeks is going to lead us through that. And then there's two of them here in chapter 13 that talk about how the kingdom of heaven is about God's rule both now and in the future. And so that's going to be today, and then Kevin's going to wrap up this series in three weeks' time. And it was amazing for me, I shared with Kevin, that a few weeks ago, we had just ordered one afternoon, we ordered a series of books called The Weeds Among the Wheat that we got for our leadership team at Youth Unlimited, book to help us figure out about discernment. How can we discern what God has for us. So it's called Weeds Among the Wheat, ordered it that afternoon. That evening I got home, opened my email, and it was Kevin on this preaching series, and he had recommended a parable next to each of our names, and sure enough, that's the one that he had for me. It's the parable that we're going to do this morning on Weeds Among the Wheat. So very cool to get that. Thank you, God. Message received. It was clearly time for me to dive into this a little bit. So this morning we're looking at this parable that the disciples themselves in the story called The Story of the Weeds in the Field. 
It's also become known, if your Bible has headings, it might say parable of the weeds and the wheat. If you have King James Version, it was known as the parable of the tares, which was another name for the weeds that were, that were sown in this story. So get your Bibles. The parable itself is found in Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30. And then it's followed a little while later by an explanation, a little further down, starting in verse 36. This one is not found in any other Gospels. You may know a lot of the parables, they're kind of told three or four different times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not so with this one. It's only Matthew who tells it. So it probably was a little extra relevant to the Jewish hearers of Matthew and their desire, their fierce desire, to see their Messiah come and make all things right. And just before we get into the verses, you know, I was reading this week, Ed Stetzer, who's a, past, a pastor and author down in the States, actually heads up the Billy Graham Center in uh, Wheaton, Illinois. And he wrote that this is one of the most misunderstood parables in Scripture. So we're going to get today to the two points where often it seems like this parable gets off the rails as people try to interpret it. So, so again, Lord guide us. We are going to start by engaging the parable first, and uh, then we're going to pause and have communion, and then we're going to get to the interpretation. And I really felt this week God asking us to have the discipline to linger first in the parable. There's pieces in the parable we need to learn. And if we jump just all the way quickly right at the beginning to the interpretation, we kind of bypass how Jesus' hearers would have heard it in the first place. And we lose some of the richness of what the parable in itself, it can stand alone. What does it teach us? And, and so we're going to do that this morning before we get through to the explanation. So here we go. Matthew 13, starting at verse 24. It says, here is another story that Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked. No, he replied, you'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest, then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles and burn them, and to put the wheat in the barn. So this idea of, of the farmer kingdom of heaven is like the farmer who sows good seed. Now, that doesn't mean the kingdom of heaven is just like the farmer. It's saying the kingdom of heaven is like this whole story that's about to unfold. But it starts with him planting good seed. I don't know if you remember, Chris Fortin did a fantastic job about three years ago reminding us of the importance of that good seed for a farmer, that economically everything depends on that seed being pure, the seed being well sorted, the seed being of a high quality so we don't know, you know, was, did the farmer himself sow it? Did he have workers that did it? The story doesn't tell us. But we do know that it was critical that this was good, high-quality seed. Now that's easier today with technology and, and machinery that can actually get in there and sort it out. Back then it was tougher. But we know from this story that it was a job well done. We get to verse 25, and then we hear that as night came, as the workers slept, an enemy came and planted weeds and then slipped away. 
You know, it's good for us to recognize here when that attack came. It came when people slept. It came when defenses were down. It came as evil does under cover of darkness. It arrives hidden. It slips away. It comes when our guard is down. And then the enemy in this case is, is a weasel and just, just sneaks away. Letting others take the blame, not, know, not wanting people to know who it was. But it's important for us to pause here and recognize just how intentional, just how strategic an act of sabotage and destruction this was. This is no mere accident. This is intent to go in, sneak in, and destroy. We need to, to really understand what this passage is about. We need to understand a bit more about these weeds. And there's all sorts that's written on this. You can study it. But really at the heart of it, the weed, King James used to call it tares. It was almost certainly that it was a plant called darnel. And this was one that was quite troublesome for farmers. And the understanding of this parable hinges on the fact that basically the two of them were so similar in appearance. It actually was called false wheat. So similar in appearance to wheat until at the very end when both are fully ripe. And then the head of the wheat, so the kernel or the head inside the wheat is a bit heavier and it droops down and the darnel, it actually is lighter in the head and it stays straight up. But you couldn't tell it until the very end, until harvest time. If they were gathered together and milled together, the flour would be spoiled. And so we see in verse 26 that they start to grow together. You know, and a reminder to us that the soil, the rain, the sun that God provides, it shines on both. In this case, it is provided to the weeds and the wheat alike. We know in Scripture there is a theme, often troubling to followers of God, asking why does he provide for the righteous and the wicked? It is part of his plan in this season of time. But the weeds, as they start growing in a field, we know this, we've seen them, can become absolutely overwhelming. You've maybe seen news things, you've seen them from time to time of, of bylaw officers getting sent to, to houses where you can no longer even see the, the yard anymore, you can't see the grass. Our oldest daughter, Rebecca, she uh, moved into a house starting in May out in Ancaster at Redeemer University. So it's a house in a beautiful subdivision. These lawns are kind of manicured, manicured. We'll leave this one for a second. Manicured, manicured. They had the one in the middle. And they did not need to move in until September, but the lease started in May. So in order to, to bring the cost down a bit, they sublet it out this summer to a bunch of boys who were attending the school. Well, we dropped her off the last week of August and pulled into the driveway. I couldn't find a picture on Google that would do it justice. And I asked Rebecca last night if any of her friends had kept pictures, and she said no, none of them wanted to take any pictures of it. This was out of control. You could not see a blade of grass. It was weeds to your knees, to your waist, thistles, the front of the house, the side of the house, the backyard. I don't know how no one had called them. Thankfully, one of the girls was smart enough to start dating a guy with a lawnmower, and uh, they, it all got, it got mowed all summer long. But that first glimpse was well, such a reminder. We can look at that and we can just lose sight of the healthy wheat, the healthy grass that is there. We can lose sight that God is at work because sometimes the weeds just choke it out. 
the evil that is around us at times just chokes out for us, it becomes harder and harder to see evidence of God at work. But take hope. He is there. He's at work even when we can't see it. Verse 27, we all of a sudden have the surprise. And it's, it's a brilliant question that the workers bring to the farmer. Where did these weeds come from? So think for a second about the original audience. You know, it's a great question. The Messiah, in their mind, came to bring the kingdom. So if Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom had come, why did evil still exist? This farmer planted good seeds. Shouldn't everything in the field be pure? You know, don't we offer or, or often wonder the same thing? The psalmist asked it. The prophets asked it. The Pharisees asked it. We ask it. Why does God allow evil to grow and thrive alongside the righteous? It's a question that remains a bit of a mystery to us. When he comes to the explanation, which we're going to get to in a few minutes, uh, we get a bit of a light shone on it. But it is something that is troubling to many of us who follow Christ. Why is it that evil is allowed to persist? Verse 28, the farmer recognizes right away that this is the work of an enemy. Apparently, this was actually common back there. There was even in Roman law, there was specifically a law forbidding people from going in and planting this weed amongst crops. So it was something the listeners would have understood. The farmer knew what had happened. And we get now to the heart of the parable. Should we pull out the weeds? They ask the question. We don't know all that was behind it. We don't know if it was motivated by keeping their jobs and the health and well-being of the farm and just wanting to make sure that these weeds didn't choke out the crop. There could have been more behind their question. But it sounds like it must have been a temptation in Matthew's day, and it has been for followers of Jesus ever since. Where we get this sense where we go, let's get to it. Let's take matters into our own hands and root out the evil that is around us. And we can quickly jump to the conclusion that we know the difference between the weeds and the wheat, and we know how to deal with it. But look at the answer. In verse 29, the farmer forbids the workers from pulling them up. Why? Because in the process, they would damage the crop. In the process, the good wheat would be harmed. What is it that the, father was that the farmer was worried about? Well, it could be that even if the workers could distinguish between the two of them, the very fact that they have to go out into the fields to walk into them and pull out all the, we the weeds, they would be trampling the weed in the process, and it could be harmed. It could be that even if they could distinguish them, pulling up the weeds would damage the, root, the, the roots of the wheat. This is a picture of, of young wheat taken from a cross-section. You can imagine going in and trying to pull out one of those plants. The, the roots underneath are intertwined and are going to be damaged or, or ripped off entirely. So the farmer says, no, don't go out yet and pull them out. You will harm the good crop in the process. But I think there's a third reason, and the clue is the type of weed that was growing. The fact is that more often than not, the workers can't distinguish. And that's the point of this. The weeds can mimic wheat. The wheat can mimic the weeds. 
right up until the very end, the two of them grow side by side, indistinguishable, inescapable, until the harvest. So should we pull out the weeds? No. Because the workers would not always get it right, and the wheat would be harmed in the process. I was in the, the hospital doing a visit to someone on Thursday evening, and the floor that we were on, it was a rehab floor, the floor that we were on had an influenza breakout. And so as you went in, you had to do all the hand sterilizing, and then they handed you, right? You had to put on the mask, which if I put this on now, the, uh, the mask on my shirt, the, uh, my headphone will fall off. So you had to put on the mask, right? And then you have the gowns, and then you have the, all the gloves and everything else. And it struck me as I was walking down the hall that at that point, I could no longer tell, unless they had a badge that was visible, who was staff, who was visitors, and even if they were doing well and, and kind of near being discharged from the hospital, who was patients? Everybody looked the same because everyone was kind of cloaked. That's the point of this story, the reminder that though we think we may always be able to distinguish, the Lord's reminding us here that until the end, we can't. These two things, the wheat and the weeds, grow together. Surprisingly, in verse 30, the workers have no further role to play. When the harvest is ready, there are harvesters that the farmer will bring in to take it over and separate. Weeds will be burned as fuel. The wheat will get to the barn. Finally, safe, protected, no longer vulnerable. This parable, as we pause before we get to the, uh, the explanation... It paints a beautiful picture of patience. Even well-meaning Christians can desire to rid ourselves of those who don't measure up to our standards of belief or our standards of action. There can be an attempt there to clean house that would cause great harm. In Luke 9, there's a story where Jesus and the disciples were moving through Samaria. And people were opposed to Jesus. And so James and John, two of the closest disciples to Jesus said to him, Jesus, should we, should we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? They're evil. They're opposed to you. Look at what they're doing. Should we destroy them? And Jesus says to them, no. In fact, it says he rebuked them that no, that was not their decision to make. We only see a snapshot. God is seeing this movie from start to finish the parts that have already played out, that played out hidden to our view, and the parts that are yet to come, we see a snapshot, and even that, only a partial one. Leanne and I, don't know if any of you saw it, we went on Good Friday and saw the movie The Apostle Paul. If you pause here for a second, whether you've seen the movie or you know the story, imagine if, if as he was Saul, so clearly looking in this story as a weed, as a person of evil. Imagine if he had been taken out early. Imagine if he, if God had not been patient with him and allowing him to become Paul, to become the leader of the movement that, uh, of explaining to people about who Christ was and teaching us and training us in how to become followers of Christ. We need to trust God's timing. The harvest will come. Let's jump to verse 36, and then we're going to move to our time of communion. Jesus leaves the crowd here, as he often did, 
and he went inside to just be with the disciples. It's like the parable of the sower that had happened earlier in the chapter. The disciples then come and they want more. They, they feel like the need for an explanation. It reveals their heart that they didn't quite get it yet, but they really did truly want to follow and they wanted help. You know, it is good for us to get together, to go home, to hang out in the gym, to talk about a sermon, to talk about teaching after your small group, to go home and send someone an email and, and, and try to figure it out. Ask for help together. Like in James 1.5, it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, ask of God and he'll give it to you. These are truths that God's spirit illuminates and it's good for us to pause and ask God to give us a deeper picture. So this parable, it, it's rich in and of itself, but it was not yet complete. Jesus was about to add another layer. And we'll get to that last little piece after communion. I'm going to pause here, ask our, uh, our worship team to come back up. Matthew separated parable from ex explanation, and we're going to do the same here this morning. As our, our tie-in for communion, I want to encourage us just to take a moment in silence and have a time of confession. Confessing to the Lord our tendency to want to control timing. Our tendency to want to take things into our own hands. Vengeance. Justice. Putting down those who are opposed to us or opposed to Christ and to take that into our own hands. But the truth is that at the cross, Jesus took care of it all. It is finished. Our call is to trust him that the death and the resurrection of Christ in his perfect timing will deal with all the evil in this world, will deal with all that opposes us, all that opposes him. And he invites us to trust him in the midst of that, to yield our control, to wait. It is finished. Jade's going to pray for a time of communion, and then I'll come back up with the second part of the parable. So we join back with Jesus and his disciples as he gives them the explanation, the added layer to the end of this parable. So join with me if you're following along, starting at verse 37. Jesus replied, the son of man is the farmer who plants the good seed. He starts to interpret. The field is the world. The good seed represents the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. The enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the world. The harvest, the harvesters are the angels. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen and understand. You know, often in the parables, we talked about it at the beginning, you need to be careful about turning them into full-on metaphors. You know, this is like this, and this is like this, and this represents this. But in this case, because Jesus is the one who does that for us, it's accurate. And it's important for us to lean in. So he makes these seven statements... We've got them up here on the slide, and, and we can kind of read them. The farmer's the son of man, field is the world, and he, he goes through and he explains what each piece of the parable meant. 
We're going to zoom in really briefly just on three, the ones that most readily can become misunderstood. The first one is that the field equals the world. Many have attempted to use this parable to explain about the church, how the church has a mixture of true believers and false ones, unbelievers in the midst of church congregations or in the midst of the church as a whole. Well, it's true that other parables in Matthew do speak of the church as this mixed body. You know, in chapter 22, the wedding banquet. In chapter 25, the sheep and the goats. But that's a situation that will be resolved only at the final judgment. But this parable doesn't take us there. And we'll mess up the understanding of it if we go there. The field is the world where the children of the kingdoms, both kingdoms, reside together, side by side. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. God is the owner of this field. The devil is the intruder. In this age, though, those two worlds collide. So this world to our day today continues to have trouble. Our world continues to have evil. Just watch the news. Jesus predicted it. The second one that we need to be careful of or understand is that the harvest equals the end of the world. There's not really a surprise here. In scripture, all the way back to lots of prophets, Isaiah and Hosea and Joel and in the Gospels and, and in Revelation, harvest is used as a symbol of kind of the end time and final judgment. Fire is used as a symbol of divine and eternal punishment. But the piece here that we need to key in on is that when God deems the time to be ready, then and only then, the harvest will be completed. All will be judged. Friends, it, it is important for us, it is sobering, us, sobering for us to realize that Christ our Lord will not be patient forever. And when the final day comes, the separation will be complete and perfect. There will not be a single weed left among the wheat. There will not be a single head of wheat left amongst the weeds. Now the two are muddled together. In that moment, there will be no doubt. There will be no ambiguity. All who have received Christ by faith will be saved, shining like the sun in the Father's kingdom. But all evildoers, and this passage says, and those who cause evil will be cast into the furnace of fire. It is very final. It is very sobering. There is no turning back. He also reminds us, the final one to zoom in on, of who does this harvesting. And he tells us that the harvesters are the angels. Christ alone will delegate the judgment. Let that be enough. Friends, we have no part to play in that. Thank God. Thank God. I'm reminded, you know, the, the theme from uh, Lord of the Rings as Gandalf turned to Frodo and he said, do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. Do you know that four times in the book of Matthew alone, Jesus indicates to us that we will make mistakes when we try to guess who's in and who's out. He alone sees who is in the kingdom of heaven. There will be surprises 
but God will judge perfectly. Those surprises are to us, not to him. He will judge perfectly. And for all of us, as this passage wraps up in verse 43, will we heed the warning to listen and understand? And so we conclude. What is the kingdom of heaven like? Well, from this story, we're reminded that it coexists with the kingdom of darkness. It always will be that way until the Lord returns. God will sort it out in the end. Of that, there's no doubt. But we are to leave it to him. In the meantime, we show patience and restraint. There are times for us to identify the kingdom. There's times for us to proclaim the kingdom. There's times for us to celebrate the kingdom. But although it is never ours to judge, there are also times for us to sound the warning that judgment is coming. You know, I've preached many times here at Forest Brook. It's been a privilege. And rarely has it been fire and brimstone. But this passage really leaves no other choice this morning. We have to finish here. Friends, Jesus reminds us that God, even in his perfect mercy, will be our judge. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, we've been heartbroken. Jeff, you led us in that time of silence this morning for what's happening. Um, just a heartbroken community. Um, the humbled community in Saskatchewan. It is a sobering reminder to us this morning. We do not know what today will hold. What this afternoon's you know, drive home will hold. We don't know what tomorrow will hold. I want to encourage us, as the Lord does in this passage, don't wait. Don't wait. Choose him today. That our, <laughs> you can enter into kingdom life with him on earth now. That you get to the barn. <laughs> Safe. No longer vulnerable. In his hands shining with the Father for all eternity. The worship team is going to take this home for us this morning and just invite you afterwards. Come on up. Let us listen to you. Let us talk to you. Let us pray with you. Let us celebrate with you. But please don't leave this place today. If you're uncertain of what this parable is speaking to you, do not leave this place today. Come and meet the Lord.